Well, if you keep that passage there, there open for yourself, I think you'll, you'll find that helpful to uh, follow along. We'll finish now this week, this particular sort of uh, interaction at the Feast of Tabernacles, and we'll, we'll take a little break from John and, and come back to it um, in, a, in a few months' time. But I wonder if you've ever been at a sort of meeting which has just sort of descended into sort of chaos and nobody really knows what's going on. And I guess the best possible illustration and example of that has happened this week, hasn't it? If you've managed to see it in the news, there was a parish council meeting down in England and uh, a certain celebrity, uh, Jackie Weaver, the sort of unfortunate sort of host who was given the poison chalice of trying to sort of uh, keep that thing together and just descending into utter chaos of no one, I don't think really knowing what on earth was going on. Well, you get something of that uh, in this whole interaction here. We see that the passage, if nothing else, seems to be all about questions. There are 14 questions across 23 verses. And so it's somewhat sort of disrupted because it feels like it's a, an inquisition. Um, but they all surround one real question. And it's really the question that's been under everything so far, all of the events that people you can see have been trying to ask and answer in their own minds and hearts. And that is, who is Jesus. Firstly here, verses 25 to 31 here, we see his unknown origins. One of the things we're going to see is all of these questions here, but three different groups of people with different responses and reactions to Jesus. And the first of these groups here we see is a crowd who think that they know, but they don't know. Their problem with Jesus is his origins. They don't really have a problem with uh, the works, and actually they don't necessarily reject him on the basis of the words, but they do have a problem with his origins. Sometimes we find this, only this difficulty of thinking you know, but not really knowing. There's a great uh, quote here from Socrates, uh, you know, interspersed with the sort of much more uh, juvenile illustrations and what have you. Every now and again, I like to throw in a more cultured thing just to, you know, balance it off. Uh, Socrates here says, I seem then in just this little thing to be wiser than this man at any rate, that what I do not know, I do not think I know. Do you hear what he's saying? That he's different to the crowd. The crowd think that they know what they actually don't really know. But Socrates says, if nothing else, the only thing I can be given is, I'm aware of the things I don't know, and I don't pretend to know them. But sometimes that can be difficult in life. And actually sometimes it's history that really tells us uh, when we've been on the wrong end of that. There are some times where people thought they knew, but they didn't really know at all. This is Joey Essex. I would say looking confused, but I think that seems to be pretty much his default uh, face. I think a lot of life seems to confuse him. Poor guy. Five times when people thought they knew, but really, really didn't know. And history told us that they didn't know. Uh, one uh, music executive given the opportunity to sign the Beatles in 1962, uh, passed on it and said, we don't like their sound and guitar music is on the way out group that would go on to be one of the biggest selling acts of all time. The telephone uh, 
one of the executives uh, uh, who had been part of the process of making the thing uh, says this, that this telephone has too many shortcomings to be seriously considered as a means of communication. The device is inherently of no value to us. That was a Western Union internal memo from 1876. Or how about the home computer? Uh, one of IBM's uh, its chairman, in fact, in 1943, Thomas Watson said, I think there is a world market for maybe five computers. How wrong could he have been? Or perhaps the car. Uh, the president of the bank who were speaking with Henry Ford's uh, lawyer and trying to convince him not to invest in the Ford Motor Company said that the horse is here to stay, but the automobile is only a novelty, a fad. Or perhaps a New York Times article from 1936 that said, a rocket will never leave the Earth's atmosphere. Sometimes you can think that you know and realize that you don't know at all. The crowd think that they know about Jesus, but they don't know at all. We're told here, verse 25, that the people of Jerusalem came in. So this is a different crowd. This is not necessarily the same crowd from Galilee that had followed him here. This is a different group of people. And maybe this is a more challenging crowd. You know, this isn't the Galilee crowd. These aren't the country bumpkins. These are the city sort of socialites. These are cultured people. We're a bit harder to impress Jesus uh, than the simpletons from the countryside and they say isn't this the man that they're seeking to kill and John via the crowd is reminding us of an old conflict that he introduced in chapter 5 verse 18 that they were seeking to kill him and it was sort of left there as a sort of dormant plot point but now it's come alive again isn't this the man they're seeking to kill and the crowd know the rumors and innuendo about Jesus they know that he's one that the rulers want dead, but there's a confusion here. Verse 26, they, he is speaking openly, and yet the rulers say nothing. Can it be then, they say, that the authorities know he's the Christ? The last they've heard, the rulers wanted Jesus dead and wanted rid of him, but now he's here, he's speaking openly, and they're doing nothing about it. Have they perhaps changed their mind? think what we realise instead is that the rulers are very cowardly. We read of four times throughout uh, Matthew and Mark's gospel accounts of the rulers not doing things for fear of the crowd. Matthew 21, 26, we're afraid of the crowd for they all held that John was a prophet. They're afraid to give their real honest answer about John the Baptist when Jesus poses them what he knows is a very challenging question to them because they're afraid of how the crowd will respond. Matthew 21 verse 46 again says, although they were seeking to arrest him, that was now Jesus, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Mark 11 verse 18, that the chief priests and the scribes were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And Mark 12 verse 12, they were seeking to arrest him but feared the people for they perceived he had told a parable against them. No change of mind, but there is a cowardice to the leaders. And so we see this contention here in verse 27. We know where this man comes from. The problem, they think, is that they do know him. The problem isn't what they don't know, it's what they do know. We know where you're from. We know you. The problem 
as far as they can see, is not their lack of information, but the abundance of it. And it seems there is an expectation that they're referencing here that the Messiah would come sort of very suddenly with very little to no explanation. We get one particular example of that sort of promise in Malachi 3, verse 1, that the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So it's not completely a ridiculous expectation on their part. It's not without some precedent. But the problem for them seems to be, well, we're expecting Messiah to suddenly come to the temple who we know nothing about. We've never met before. We've never seen him. We haven't grown up alongside him. We haven't been to school with him someone we don't know and so now there's a correction verse 28 he says you know me and there should be a tinge of irony <laughs> to that question that he's asking here you know me a tinge of sarcasm in there i've come not of my own accord he says but of he who sent me is true and him you don't know you don't know as much as you think that you know you know where I've grown up. You don't know where I'm from. And you don't know who I've come from. My father. There's a correction. But there's also a conspiracy here now. Verse 36. Uh, no, 30. Sorry, I can't read my writing. But they were seeking to arrest him. They've pulled out that problem. That, look, they were seeking to arrest him before, but now he's speaking openly. They're doing nothing. So now we'll do something. We'll do it for the Sanhedrin, for the ruling council here. And yet, despite their attempts to grab hold of him, no one laid hand on him because his hour had not yet come. It's something that we thought about the last, was it the last time or the time before? But this, this is a recurring theme through John that Jesus' hour had not come, had not come, had not come until it does come at his trial, arrest and death. His hour hadn't come yet. And so no matter how hard they may try, they're not able to get hold of him. But there's a conspiracy along with the rulers here to lay hands on Jesus and to get him out of the public eye. And then lastly, here in this section here, we see a surprising conclusion for this group who think that they know, but don't really know and seemingly are wanting to get rid of him here. Yet we hear, verse 31, many believed in him. Out of all of this, Many believe in him. Surprising conclusion. And they say here, will he do more signs than this man when the Christ comes? If he's not the Christ, what Christ is going to come that could possibly do more than Jesus already has? No matter what they may have heard from the religious leaders here. And no matter what doubts they may have about his origins, which is their problem here problem for us is we know too much about you we were sort of expecting messiah who would come who we wouldn't know anything about the problem that now leads them to belief is the weight of his works it's hard to dismiss all the things that he's done we might not be sure about some aspects here about his upbringing but it's very hard to dismiss his works we see on the one hand a group of people who think that they know all there is to know about Jesus and realizing really they don't know very much at all and, and don't we know that and experience that and perhaps that may be uh, somewhere where you've come from when you've come to faith certainly that was my story thinking I knew I knew him and I wasn't interested and I actually realized I didn't know him at all 
And yet also, you see here that for all the problems of the doubts here on this, that they just find themselves unable to dismiss his works. Secondly, we see the, the story now transition a little bit as we see Jesus uh, saying he's going to be leaving for parts unknown in verses 32 to 36 here. And now we see a, a crowd who just simply don't know what to think of Jesus. The first crowd's problem is they think that they do know and they have to come to terms with the fact that they don't know. This crowd simply doesn't know what to think of Jesus. The Pharisees here, verse 32, heard the crowd muttering. And so the Pharisees are there. And this is some of the problem that the, the crowd at the beginning was noting here that why is it that Jesus is here? He's teaching openly, but the religious leaders aren't doing anything. We know that they want rid of him. It's not because they're not there. They are there, but they're not brave enough to confront him. And so the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. And now the religious leaders have heard enough. They're seeking to arrest Jesus right there and then. They think that the problem is getting rid of Jesus. But Jesus will now turn the tables again. If the problem they thought the first time was that they knew too much and Jesus turns the tables and says, no, you actually don't know enough at all. They think the problem here is getting rid of him and Jesus will turn the tables again. That You think the problem is getting rid of me, but actually the problem is going to be you are going to look for me and not find me. I'll be with you a little longer, and I'm going to him who sent me. There's a time coming where he'll return, where he's going back to his father, and he's pointing again to his heavenly origins. And again, this has been the essence and the heart of the struggle and the conflict with the religious leaders back in John 5, verse 18. It came from Jesus explicitly teaching that he come from his father, he was doing the works of the father that was part of his explanation of why he'd healed the paralytic man on the sabbath my father's always working and i'm working as my father is they realized that he was making himself equal to god and so they desired to kill him that's uh, john's editorial note for us there of their thought process and jesus keeps stoking it back up and coming back to the same issue here i'm going back to my father pointing to his heavenly origins you think the problem is getting rid of me but soon you'll look for me and not be able to find me you'll seek me and you will not find me verse 34 you'll be unsuccessful in looking for me you'll seek me and not find me but look it continues further where i am you can't come you'll not only be unsuccessful in looking for me you're not able to and this doesn't go down well, as you might expect. This is the people who are not used to hearing no. That's not really in the vocabulary. And now we see some of the confusion over the next couple of verses here, 35 to 36. Four questions and two verses here. Is he trying to make sense of Jesus here? They say, does he intend to go to the dispersion amongst the Greeks and teach the Greeks? That is, um, those Jews who'd moved out of Jerusalem and out of Israel into other parts of the empire through uh, Europe. Notice they dismiss the possibility that he's returning to the Father. Can't be that. So where is he going? Perhaps he's going out further afield into the empire. Jesus is leaving here for parts unknown. And if they start it, just simply not knowing what to think of Jesus, 
they sort of end up in the same place <laughs> at the end of the few verses who still not really sure what to make of Jesus. Difficult to dismiss him, difficult to rule it all out, but difficult to really understand what he's talking about here. The mystery really continues here, verses 37 to 39. Now Jesus uh, tells of this mysterious gift that he's going to give here. Verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stands up and cries out to them. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Uh, the Feast of Tabernacles that we've uh, thought about over the past sort of couple of weeks as Jesus' interactions there have, uh, have come out was uh, an eight-day festival. It was actually the biggest sort of celebration of, of the year uh, this time for them, with a great celebration on the seventh day and then on the eighth day a sort of a Sabbath and a time to rest and reflect on everything before sort of returning home and returning back to sort of the normality of, of everyday life. On the seventh day, the priests would process around the altar uh, in the temple with water drawn from Siloam, and they would do that seven times. It was part of a great sort of ritual celebration. So one commentator, uh, George Beasley Murray, reflecting on this, says that um, everybody would have known whose cry it was if Jesus is crying out here on the seventh day in the midst of this celebration. They would have known whose cry it was and its significance, namely that everything embodied in that rite of past experience of salvation, present prayer and future hope was available and offered through Jesus. All of those sort of scriptures, like Isaiah 12, that we began the service with, of, of God bringing his salvation, being a, a fount of blessing to his people. And that's everything that that sort of ritual is, is encompassing and, and showing for people, that Jesus, by crying out in that moment, is saying, that's fulfilled in me. It may well be that that's what's happening, although it's not entirely clear what day Jesus is doing this on, because equally it may have been the eighth day on which he cried it, and in which case, uh, Beasley Murray says, if the cry was uttered when the sign of past and hopeful salvation was noticeably absent, the declaration of its presence in and through Jesus with invitation to receive it from him will have been a striking and powerful announcement. So either way, either Jesus in the middle of that rite and, and ritual shouts out, and you can imagine a pin sort of dropping as he interrupts that to announce that he is the fulfillment of everything that they are, are doing. Or equally, maybe in the midst of the quiet and the reflection and the meditation and the Sabbath of the eighth day, where that ritual isn't happening, where there isn't water, and Jesus now says, anyone who thirsts, come to me. Either way, Jesus is stealing the show. And if it was anyone else, we'd think, this, this, this is sort of quite diva-like, um, you know, he's quite an attention seeker, uh, maybe, maybe a bit arrogant. And perhaps we wouldn't, naturally speaking, like it. But since he is the son of God, and they were supposed to see him as the centre of attention and the centre of this celebration and reflection, it is the point. I guess as I thought about it, it's much like, although we're tempted maybe not to so much like, you know, people who take sort of centre stage like that and feel a bit uh, uneasy because you know that's that's not what we, what we would do we would feel awfully sort of awkward embarrassed doing that it's I, I, as I thought about it, it may be much like and this will be a sort of old experience for us but you know if you're ever on a plane and and somebody sort of comes down ill and they'll ask is there a doctor on the plane you know in that moment 
especially if it's me who's ill, I don't want a doctor who's sort of really polite and nice and a shrinking violet. You know, he's just a bit worried that, oh, I, I don't want to look like a show-off. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm a doctor. No, I want a doctor who is going to jump up, shout, yeah, I'm a doctor, and come with their bag. Jesus as a Messiah must be the one who would come and actually step forward and step up and say, yeah, I'm him. Everything that you're celebrating and looking for here, everything that was looking for a future fulfillment, it's now just as Jesus will be in the synagogue. And as they read the scroll of Isaiah, I will say, roll it up and say, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. I'm here. The servant filled with the spirit of the Lord sent to come and bring good news. He's in front of you. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. In Jesus, your soul finds its satisfaction. God provides for our very greatest needs and longings by giving himself to us in Jesus. And so he says, verse 38, whoever believes in me, that's the requirement, nothing else, nothing less. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It's a self-sustaining thing. Do you see that? That it's not just a one-time gift. It's not just a cup. It's a river that continues to flow. This might well actually be put in a category of great, but they don't get it. <laughs> you know, great statement, amazing words, but not really sure what you mean of it. Much like earlier in chapter six, teaching about the bread of life, the crowd will say to him, give us that bread always. Or Jesus talking with the woman at the well, talking again about, you know, um, uh, rivers of running water, the water of life, and, and her saying, sir, give me that water always. But not really understanding exactly what he means, thinking it's literal bread, it's literal water. And so John gives us this helpful editorial note here, verse 39, this he said about the spirit. It's the presence of the spirit within us given through Christ that brings this life. It's that presence of the Spirit that enables us to come to faith, that opens our eyes, that softens our heart, that leads us to respond in belief and trust of all Jesus has done. Without the fancy word is illuminating work of the Spirit and regenerating work of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit in bringing light into darkness, in opening eyes opening our hearts in changing our wills to want to respond i don't know about you but i can identify with that first crowd earlier on of thinking i'm someone who thought i knew all there was to know about jesus and so because of that i don't want to know anymore you know my problem is not not knowing it's that i do know but i'm not interested of course the work of the spirit changes your attitude it changes your thoughts it changes your heart to respond to God's pursuing you through Jesus. He's speaking about the Spirit, but verse 39 here continues, as yet the Spirit hadn't been given because Jesus wasn't yet glorified. And to be sure, there's experiences of the Holy Spirit before um, Jesus having died and been risen and ascended, but they're momentary. You'll see people like David, like Samson, um, 
uh, and like a number of others who experience the work of the spirit upon them for a moment and then you'll see it kind of go what you won't see is an ongoing continuous and regular experience of God's presence in that way through the third person of the trinity the holy spirit you don't you don't see that you see glimpses and you see moments and encounters but you don't see ongoing constant journey this is what uniquely happens as a result of Jesus's work and then his ascension and gift of the spirit afterwards a new experience of the spirit that actually is is not patchy and momentary but is continual it's a gift that only comes when he's gone he'll say in chapter 16 if I don't go then the spirit can't come for some here the guards in particular when we note their words here the words of Jesus are hard to dismiss we'll see that in the next sort of few verses even if they don't understand for that first crowd the thing was it's very difficult to dismiss his works the weight of those are enough for us to say well how can somebody else come and possibly do more than what he's done that just doesn't seem possible when we look at all that he's done for the guards here and we don't know too much else about them and their experiences of Jesus or not beforehand but their thing is it's hard to dismiss the words no matter what we've been told and our orders are go and arrest him and bring him back but his words are hard to dismiss even if we don't fully understand them for the religious leaders and what we'll see in this final section here is that these words that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these long hoped for promises of salvation make them more determined to get rid of Jesus so lastly here we see a people divided result and reaction in the crowds here is simply further division much as was prophesied by Simeon in Luke chapter 2 that that would happen that there would be Jesus would be given for the rising and the falling of many that people would be divided in their opinions of him um, we see this at times that sometimes you can um, hear and be part of the same thing but respond in wildly different ways long time ago now but in the first ever sort of televised uh, presidential uh, debate uh, John Kennedy and Richard Nixon went head to head and this was the first debate of this kind on television and also simulcast on radio for those on radio uh, as far as they could hear from answers they thought it seemed pretty evenly matched but for those who watched on television they felt it was a clear victory for John F Kennedy who simply just looked more comfortable, more presidential, more human. Richard Nixon under the heat of the lights and pressure of the cameras actually wilted and he was uh, noticeably sort of sweating and just looked awkward. You can be part of the same thing and respond very differently and take very different things away from it. And we see this divide between the people and it's a classic sort of divide really between the great and the good, the educated elite, and the common people. If uh, the femme fatale in the pulp song, Common People, wanted to live with common people, wanted to see everything that common people saw, the religious and social elite here wanted nothing further from that. They wanted as little to do with common people as they could possibly get away with. And this is a problem that continues to happen where the 
nature of Jesus's followers as tending to be common, ordinary, average, everyday people is dismissed. Uh, John Lennon, famous for saying that Jesus was all right, but his disciples were thick and ordinary. A sort of condescending attitude towards his followers. For the religious leaders, their problem here is they reject Jesus because of the location of his upbringing and won't consider his words and works. We've got a crowd here who will not even consider anything beyond what they think they know. For the guards and the crowd, no matter what the leaders may say, we just can't dismiss so easily Jesus's words, in the case of the guards, or works in the case of that first crowd. Verse 40 years. Some of the people said, this is really, uh, this really is the prophet. Some said, this is the Christ. And some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Some believe he really is the prophet. That is the sort of prophesied, uh, the prophet from Deuteronomy 18. A great prophet, although perhaps stopping short of recognising him to be God, some recognise Jesus as being the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one sent from God, sent from the Father's side to come and to live and to die for us. And he might save us and that he might be that sort of eternal, righteous and faithful and good king who leads us into all human flourishing, spiritual and physical material. And some simply said he's the Christ to come from Galilee. It's not a Messiah or a prophet still het up on location verse 42 here christ comes from the offspring of david and from bethlehem and actually the sad irony is of course jesus did but they didn't know and it's important to see that it's important to see that they were wrong that jesus doesn't come disregarding the law he doesn't come disregarding the prophecies and saying that doesn't matter. What matters more is me. Jesus does always fulfill the law and does always fulfill the prophecies. The problem is that people don't always see that. Why is that important? Well, that's important because Jesus comes to fulfill the law for us. It matters that Jesus really does keep it, that he doesn't break the Sabbath, but their understanding of the Sabbath was wrong. Because he'll say, as in the last chapter, you think I broke the Sabbath because I healed someone on it. But you accept that it's OK to do a circumcision on a Sabbath if that's what it takes to keep the, the law that on the eighth day, the first one said, must be circumcised. I haven't broken the Sabbath at all. Your problem is that you don't you don't read it properly. It matters that he keeps the law because he keeps it perfectly for us. Because he keeps every law, every promise, every expectation, he can give himself for us. So that every uh, sin and failing on my part can be covered by one who has perfectly kept it. He does fulfill them. They just don't know that. And verse 36 is replayed here in verse 44 that they can't get hold of him they say why didn't you bring him to us verse 45 here no and and the guards give their answer here no one ever spoke like him they say have you also been deceived they've been branding jesus as a deceiver here chapter 7 verse 12 here we hear their sort of verdict on him while some are saying he's a good man some are saying he's a prophet they say no he's leading the people 
astray. He's a deceiver. And what they want to do now is to get the people to doubt their cognitive abilities, doubt their ability to judge uh, the words for themselves. They say, have any of the authorities believed? Have any of us been taken in by this? That should tell you something. We're the great and the good. We're the ones who know. Have any of us believed? No. There's 49 here. But the crowd who doesn't know the law is a curse. There's a problem. The crowd, the common people. The authorities, we know better. But the crowd, the common people, you don't know the law. You're accursed. We don't believe because we're not stupid like you. That's the feeling. That's the message. It's clear the agenda here that sort of to, to be part of the sort of cultural intellectual elite and have faith in Jesus is incompatible. And we still see some of that attitude pervasive today, don't we? Just a snippet of some of the sort of quotes that get memed constantly on social media here. AC Grayling says it's time to refuse to tiptoe around people who claim respect, consideration and special treatment on the grounds they have religious faith, as if having faith were privilege, endowing virtue, as if it were noble to believe in unsupported claims and ancient superstitions. Stephen Hawkins, there's a fundamental difference between religion, which is based on authority and science, which is based on observation and reason. Science wins because it works or even the acts of Bill Murray. Religion is the worst enemy of mankind. No single war in history has killed as many people as religion has, not to mention it sets science back about a thousand years. There's that clear and repetitive message that somehow to be part of the great and the good and to hold to faith is simply incompatible. You can't be intelligent and rational and believe in the claims, the words, the works, of Jesus and yet they're wrong in many ways that doesn't need saying does it but even in their time they're wrong for Nicodemus clearly does believe Nicodemus we've last read of encountering Jesus in chapter three and being <laughs> quite uh, bluntly corrected by Jesus showing the actual lack of understanding in even the religious leaders, especially about the nature of faith, that it's like a new birth, that you need to be reborn. Nicodemus, though a ruler, tries to advocate for Jesus here in verses 50 to 51. And yet we see even Nicodemus, one of their own, simply dismissed. Are you from Galilee too? what this is about you've been taken in as well are you part of those thick uneducated common people or do you want to stay part of us the people are divided here they're divided in their understanding of who jesus is you see that here some the prophet some the christ some nothing but secondly they're divided amongst themselves faith is for thick common people not the great and the good the educated and the elite like us you see different crowds here we see those who think they know but don't know we see those who don't know what to think of jesus and we see those here who don't want to know what do we take away from all of that well the hope is 
at every moment and with every one of those groups, people come to know Jesus. You might have thought you know, but realise you don't know and come to know. You might simply not know, and yet you may come to know Jesus. Or you may not want to know, and you may yet come to know Jesus. This crowd here thought they knew. And Jesus tells them, you don't really know half as much as you think you know. And many believed in him because they simply couldn't dismiss the works. There was, there was too much of a weight of works there for them to just dismiss. There are many in that crowd who just simply don't know what to think of Jesus, especially as he gives a couple of messages that are challenging to understand. A mysterious gift and going to places unknown where they won't find him. And yet the guards hear those words and say, no one's ever spoken like this man will not arrest him because no one's ever spoke like him i take it that they came to believe too and even in this group of very hard line uh, sort of religious and uh, and cultural elite who say none of us will believe in him one of them does and many of them actually in the aftermath of jesus resurrection will too nobody is so far off that jesus cannot reach in and take those who are his. We were thinking just a few weeks ago of that great statement, I think it was back in chapter sort of six, wasn't it? That all those whom the father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. And we've seen that play out in all of these different people. That the only explanation could be that the father had called them to him. And so nothing was going to stop them coming to know who Jesus was, even if they didn't want to know, even if they thought they knew even if they just didn't know. I think it gives us hope, doesn't it? As we think about our friends who might not know Jesus yet, and we were praying just earlier on for uh, events weeks where you know, the CEUs are trying to reach out to people who don't know Jesus yet. I think it gives us massive hope, doesn't it? That you might be speaking with people who think, I already know. And you know they don't really know. But there's hope that they'll come to know. Because if the Father calls them, he'll draw them might be hope for those you speak with who just simply don't know and are quite open about i just really don't know what to think about jesus that like the gods they may come away and say do you know no one ever spoke like him i can't just dismiss those words or even for those who might be really insistent that they don't want to know god's grace is such that it's enough to melt the hardest of hearts even nicodemus and many others will come to know Jesus and to follow him. You might identify yourself with some of those stories, either in the past that, yeah, that's kind of <laughs> kind of how I was. Or it may even be where you are now, who knows? But the good news is that all that the Father has called to me will come to me and I'll never cast out those who come to me. Let me pray for us and then we'll uh, sing a closing song together. Father God, I thank you for your grace and your love towards us. Father, we um, may be able to identify with one or more of those groups at you know, different times in our lives. You know, being able to think, yeah, I can think of times where I just didn't know what to make of things. Or times where I thought I knew, but, you know, it turns out I didn't really know as much as I thought. Or times where we just really didn't want to know. And yet, you and your goodness and your grace and your love and your compassion and mercy were not put off by that. I just thank you so much that, still you're not put off by that 
that all those whom you call you draw to yourself. Lord, I pray for us this morning. We're thankful, Lord, for all of us, uh, all of us, Lord, who you have called to yourself. Thank you for having done that. And all the things that have been overcome in the course of that, all of our doubts, all of our scepticism, all of our reluctance. Thank you so much for that. We'll pray that we would know that we're safe with you and that you hold us, that you don't cast us out and you keep us to your side. And Lord, for those who might not know you in that way yet, I thank you for the hope here that actually no matter how far anyone may seem from you, Nobody is so far that you won't reach into their lives and to grab hold of them, to bring the illumination of your spirit, to bring light in darkness, to open eyes, to soften hearts. Lord, we think of these uh, events weeks and missions weeks coming up, Lord, and thankful, Lord, that uh, um, that is true. And pray that uh, we'll see people come to know you through that, Lord, no matter what they may have thought at the beginning of, of those events, Lord, that uh, the power and the this sort of irresistible nature of your grace, of your words and your works will shine through. And all for those who may not know you yet, Lord, pray that you would call them to yourself and draw them to you, Lord, that, you know, though we might even sometimes just feel a little bit helpless, a little bit powerless, just kind of putting words out there all the time into the, into the ether, that actually it's the power of the gospel for salvation to those who believe, firstly for Jews and also to the Greeks, with the one who lives by faith shall live. We'll be thank you for the hope of the gospel and we'll pray that you might uh, bring it to bear in our hearts and in our lives. We pray for your glory and for our good. Amen. I'm going to sing um, a closing song together.